tendency is to preach kind of chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible, taking however many weeks or months are necessary to make it through, believing that we see in context um, what is going on. We, we see the author's overall um, arch and aim, um, that we're able to preach passages that we wouldn't typically preach. We're forced to ask hard questions. Um, that it's, it's pastoral in that when, you're, when your personal sin or issue or struggle comes up, that um, you're not wondering who, who ratted you out to the pastor, right? But it's just the next, it's the next passage up. Um, and so um, we started Hebrews just a few weeks ago. And Hebrews is an interesting letter in that we don't know for sure who wrote it, um, when they wrote it, where they wrote it, um, or to who they wrote it. So here's the, the little bit that we know. It was most likely written prior to the temple's destruction in 70 A.D., but for sure it was written by 95 um, because we have reference to it by then. Um, and that it was very, very clearly written to a Jewish background Christian audience. So it's believers who come from a Jewish background. And the issue and the struggle is this, is that there's persecution is beginning to happen, some discomfort is beginning to happen, and the, the, the former Jewish believers are going, hey, it might be easier if we just go back to being Jews. And the author is warning them and exhorting them and encouraging them, do not go back. And so ultimately what he's doing is he's holding Jesus up and he's saying, look at him. He is far more and far better than you can imagine and then you can think, don't, don't go back to what's familiar. Don't go back to what might be easier or more comfortable or what what might avoid some persecution for you. And so he's just walking through and saying, look, Jesus is better than the prophets in chapter 1 because he's the son. And Jesus is better than the angels. And Jesus is better than Moses. And he's just going to continue to work his way through the letter saying Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. And he is better. And so as we jump into chapter 3 this morning, I want us just to to briefly think about um, how do you feel about warnings, right? Warning labels, Warnings from people. Um, I, I think we fall into probably a couple different camps. There's some of us who think common sense needs to rule out and that there are far too many warnings, right? So when you see a warning that your coffee is hot, you're like, I don't need that warning, right? I understand that coffee is hot. Um, you know, when you have the warning on the mattress that you're like, I'm not sure I needed that. Um, but, but others, right, we, we think about maybe being on an airplane and having the warning and the instructions prior to the flight and you're going, I'm not sure why we're talking about flotation devices. We're flying from like Amarillo to Houston, right? But if, if an emergency happened, right, how grateful are you for the warning, for the instructions prior to, um, other than you probably weren't paying attention and you might panic in that moment, right? So, so warnings matter to us often based on who gave the warning, right? And then it, then it matters to us not just who gave it to us, but do we see the situation as one that needed a warning, and so there are times if you're traveling in a new place and you stop at a gas station and they give you a warning about a road or a bridge, you're like, man, I'm super appreciative of that. I would have had no way of knowing that. You're a local. Appreciate it. But if we think about our children receiving warnings, they're almost never grateful for them, right? They're like, I'm going to do what I want to do, right? And so we, we can fall into either camp of, of looking at warnings as unnecessary and, but we've probably all had opportunities in moments where a warning really was a beneficial and good thing. So Hebrews 3, we're going to begin in verse 7. And what we're going to see this morning is a warning from the author of Hebrews to the church. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold out our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those with was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we know that they're struggling with persecution and suffering. They're, they're looking to be drawn back into an easier situation. And we know because it's a Jewish, um, historically, um, their past audience that they love Moses. That, that, that they know the stories of the Old Testament. And that Moses would have been one of the, the primary hero, heroes. And so what he's drawing their attention to is the exodus. Like the, the great intervention of God in history for the Jewish people. Where they had spent 400 years in Egypt, the last couple hundred as slaves. Where the people were, were crying out and groaning, longing for relief and rescue and redemption. That he sends Moses to lead the people out of the, the clutches of Egypt into the land that was promised to them when Abraham was called in Genesis. The place where they were meant to be, where they belonged. And so here's the thing. It's important for us this morning to be reminded of this, that we are created for rest and to be with God. That, that, right, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, God created us, put us in a garden with Him. And it was right, and it was harmonious, and it was perfect. And listen, there was work there, so, so rest doesn't mean a lack of work, but it means security and stability, right? Good things. And then rebellion occurred. And so we lost that rest. So then God calls Abraham in Genesis and says, from you, I'm going to make a nation, a people that is going to be held up in the world that the other nations will see them and, and see you. And they're going to see my character reflected in you. And they're going to worship. And I'm going to give you a land as part of that, a place to, to have me and to be secure. And so that's what's going on now with the people, right? Is that they're being taken out of Egypt. In the Exodus, if if we want to look forward for a second in Revelation, we are reminded that there will be a day for us, for those who trust and love Jesus, where we will be with God again in rest with every tear wiped from our eyes. And the place where we were we belong is in rest. And so what the author is doing here is he's saying, look, Jesus is taking us towards rest. But you have another example of this, that that Moses was to take my people to rest, to the land that belonged to them, that I had given them. And so God comes in and he intervenes and pours out miracles of wrath upon Egypt until the day that Pharaoh finally says, okay, go, be gone. 
And so God's mighty hand rescues a lowly people from the greatest, one of the greatest military mights and nations in, in, in history. And so as they go out into the wilderness, headed to the place that they belong, with their God, he continues to intervene. Because eventually Pharaoh sends his army after them. And they're destroyed in the Red Sea as it has opened for Israel and then crushes the Egyptian army. That he feeds them in the desert with, with food, manna on the ground, divinely given on a daily basis so that they would be reminded of his provision. That he gives them water in the desert, right, through, through a rock or through bitter water having a, a, in Exodus 15, a log thrown into it, right? And it makes the water sweet and able to be drank. And yet what continued to happen as God leads them through a pillar of fire or a cloud, right? As these things continue to happen, as he continues to pour out miracles and provision and safety and rescue, what the people are constantly doing is grumbling. In Exodus 15, right after they pass through the Red Sea, they're like, you brought us out here to die, God. Right? We go over to Exodus 17. God, you brought us out here like it would be better if we were back there slaves because at least we had something to eat and something to drink. And they're so quick and prone to forget of God's provision and his rescue and his mercy. Right? right? Like that he's led them out of Egypt to kill them in the desert. Like that, that it makes no sense at all. And they're seeing God's gracious, mighty, powerful hand and going, eh, but what'd you do for me today? Right? What are you going to give me today? How are you going to show up today? And so the author here is quoting from Psalm 95. And if you look at Psalm 95, and I would encourage you to read it this week or read it at Gospel Community, the first half is this call to worship and to praise of God. And then the second half begins to recount some of the events of the whining and the rebellion that the people did during the Exodus. And so what he is going to do now is he is going to warn us and warn them the dangers of unbelief, the dangers of, of, of strain from the way that God has provided for rescue. And so he's going to really address this to two different groups. The first group is going to be to those who don't yet believe or maybe those who are intellectually have affirmed Jesus, but they don't trust him, right? Like they would, they would agree to the tenets of the gospel, but they're not following Jesus, and one of the first things he's going to say is this, is that sin is deceitful. Right? Look at verse 13. So exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We, we just finished 1 Timothy a few weeks back. And in one of the things that, that Paul is writing to his kind of protege, Timothy, is this. We can be deceived. Right? Like that sin doesn't come knocking at our door saying, sin's here. Do you want to engage with me or not, right? That sin is deceptive and it's deceitful and it shows up looking like something good. It shows up looking like where you can see it and someone else going, how do they not see that that's sin? And then we're completely blind to our own, right? That, that, that our enemy is crafty and capable. And so he deceives and, and, and tempts us in the ways that are most palatable to us. So there are things that this morning you don't struggle with. And it could be put on a silver platter before you, and you could easily walk away and say, no, I don't want it. And there are other things that you feel like own you. And you can't seem to get past them. You can't seem to get away from it. 
that sin is deceitful. It blinds us. It tricks us. It, it, it morphs. It sets up traps, right, where we look at it as, as easy and simple and controllable. And then before we know it, we realize it's not controllable. It actually controls us. It has us. That we can't say no anymore. We feel like if we don't engage in it, we're going to literally die. That it, it, that it just, and we know better intellectually, and yet we can't get away from it. And that it takes us in small steps, right? Very few people walk out today and just go, hey, so I haven't thought about doing this sin at all, and then make this huge public jump. For most of us, sin just baits us just a little at a time, like, it's okay. Just a little. Just a little. Until all of a sudden we look up and it's just a little step into that big sin, that public sin, that shameful sin, that people would go, how did you do that? And you're going, I don't know. I really, I don't know how I got here. And it was small step after small step because sin blinded us to where we were headed. It deceived us. It, it, it trapped us. And listen, that's not to take us, our responsibility out of this. But I think for many of us, we don't look at sin as deceitful. We look at it as I can do with it what I want, when I want, and when I want to lay it down, I can. And yet scripture is going to remind us over and over again that we cannot. Do you believe this morning that you are able to be deceived? The second thing he's going to want to say to to the unbelieving or to the intellectually affirming crowd is this. Is the desire for more proof is a dangerous place to be. Because the people of Israel in Exodus, in Egypt, right, were seeing God do some of the most miraculous things he has done in human history. And immediately drifting away, saying, what are you going to do for me today? Right, like that you would think when you saw the firstborn of every man, woman, child, animal in Egypt happen, you're going, I think God can do what he wants. Then when you see the Red Sea parted and people walk through it, when you see water come from a place it shouldn't come from, when food just happens to be on the ground every morning, that you're like, I think God's got this. I think he cares for me. I think he's sufficient. I think he's, he's good. And they're like, yeah, not really. I'm not sure. And that, that our tendency is to whine and to long for more. Jesus will say in Matthew 16 that it's an evil and perverse generation that is constantly asking for signs. And so he tells them the, the sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, right? Three days. And he, so he's, he's talking about his crucifixion. Like the, the sign you're going to get is that I'm going to die and be resurrected. He, in, in Luke 16, uh, talking about Lazarus, not his friend Lazarus, but the parable of Lazarus, a poor man who had died. And, and people are in hell begging, going, hey, go back. Let Lazarus go back and tell my brothers not to make the same mistake I made. And he's like... Man, if they don't listen to Moses, if they're not listening to the prophets, even someone coming back from the dead will not be sufficient for them. He's saying, look, there is a tendency for us to think we just need a little more proof, just a little more proof, just a little more proof. And, and God is saying, I have given you proof. And even more so than the Exodus, Jesus has stepped into human history. That he has revealed himself and said, I am God. Follow me back to the place that you belong, the place where you were meant for, the place of rest. Follow me to him. Trust me, I'm going to get you there. I've come from there and I'm going back there. And so he says he's given us what we need. And so listen, he is not, um, he's not upset with people who have, who have doubts or with struggle, right? He's talking about those who would affirm the truths of the gospel and say, 
but I think I need a little more. I think I need a little more. I think this isn't sufficient for me. And the fact is, as he says, like if we're not careful, there would never be enough proofs, proof that will satisfy you. It's, it's not a lot different than money, where you're going, how much money do you need? Just a little more. Right? That you never get to a place of like, okay, I've got enough. It's like, I always need just a little more. That he has revealed everything we need for life and godliness. And so the question then is this. He says, be careful not to harden. So how do we harden our hearts? Right? And basically, harden means he's just describing disobedience. Right? Where we, we're just walking in disobedience. And the first way that we harden our heart is this. It's through arrogance. Right, that we assume there's always more time. And so we put off the things of God and we, we put off trust and belief because it's like, I'll do that later. It's arrogantly believing that we have more time and that we're in control of that. Right? And so we feel like there's always a little more time, always a little more time. This also, arrogance happens, is when we begin to dabble in sin and we get away with it. And so we're like, I think, I think I'm okay. And then we dabble a little more. And we dabble a little more. And all the while, we're like, I'm not being found out. I'm not being caught, so it must be okay. If God really was upset about this, he would expose it or he would get me. And what it is, is it's arrogance thinking, I'm in control of this. So I can stop when I want. I can believe when I want. The second way we harden our heart isn't just with arrogance. It's with pride. I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't think I need rescue. Like, I'm better than most of the people that I know. I take care of my family. I make some money. I provide. I don't do these, this, and we list the big sins that we don't struggle with, right? Those are always the ones that we're like, I don't do any of those things. And our pride begins to say, do I really need rescue? Am I really that far gone? Am I really that far off? Did Jesus really need to die for me? And, and then ultimately, like, but if, if I say that he did, then that means there's a standard that I have to compare my life to, and I'm going to fall short, and my pride just says, you're okay. You've done enough. He'll figure it out with you. And so arrogance and pride both then begin to harden our hearts to God. And a third way that we harden our heart is we simply ignore him. Right? And, and so those of you who um, have raised kids or, or dealt with neighborhood kids or have, right, there's, kids have this amazing ability to tune you out, right? And they hear you, and, and they, they're like, they're knowing you're talking, but they're not actually listening, right? And so parents, you're going, like, you're looking at your kid right now going, right? Because I'll, I'll ask Carson, like, what you, what'd you hear me say? She's like, you said words to me. Right? And she's like, I know I needed to like agree to something, but I'm not sure what it was. Right? Where Jude is just like, you were talking? Right? I mean, it's just like, man, I was, like, he's in his own world. And, and so what can happen is we can do this spiritually. Right? We can train ourselves to just, to not be, not to be sensitive to something. To not, to listen close. To not feel it. To not be affected by it. Where we're like, that feels like that could lead me down a hard path. So God, I'm going to say no right now, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to stop completely, but I'm not going to really respond, and what we're doing is we're numbing ourselves, and we're hardening ourselves to where it's like, man, I don't feel like God says much. He doesn't speak very clearly, and he's like screaming at us, and we're just like, we have learned to tune, our, tune him out, and, and we have given other voices, our own, 
Other people in our life, other authors or books or entertainment have a louder voice because that's where we turn our attention and our heart to when we're looking for something. And it's not to Scripture, and it's not to prayer, and it's not to the Spirit. And so we can harden our heart through arrogance and through pride and through ignoring. And here's the thing. Right now, most of us are thinking, I don't do those things. Right? And so we've been deceived. (laughs) Because there's a struggle for all of us, really, with all of them. Because there are areas where you are sensitive to the Lord, and there are areas where you're like, you don't get to touch that, Jesus. That's mine. Right? And we're hardening our heart. And there's, a, it, there's an old, like, proverbial saying, the same sun, right, that melts wax hardens clay. Right? And so God can be saying the same thing to us, and it can either melt our heart as we turn and have affection towards him, or it can harden us because we're like, I don't want to hear that from you. And if we say that enough, our hearts are hardened, and we, our ears are turned off to what God is doing. Now listen, here's the hope for us. Scripture will also tell us the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And he occasionally just knocks people on their butt, right? Like he did with Paul, where he just knocked him off his horse and said, Hey, today you're going to believe, right? But he is talking now to folks who are in the church, right? Saying, Hey, don't be deceived. This is possible for us. And so then he wants us to see that Jesus is the better Moses. And that if we look at the in the story of Exodus, that Jesus is the better version of all of it, that he is the Passover lamb. As they put blood across the door to spare their family, that Jesus' blood was spilt so that we are spared. That as we think about the Red Sea and them passing through to freedom, that is through baptism, right? Not that we are saved, but it is a symbol that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are baptized into him because we are walking out of slavery and into freedom. Right, that, that Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh. It's the manna that they had. That it's God providing a way of provision and rescue for us. That he says, come to me, a well that will never run dry. That will always satisfy for those who are thirsty. And they drank in the desert. Right, that Jesus is the better, more clear version of every element of the Exodus. And so he is saying, look, Moses tried and did not do this. Jesus has and he will. And so he's not going to, he's not needing to like, to talk bad about Moses. He's saying Moses was great, but Jesus is better. And he's holding him up saying he is doing these things. And look, he tells them that we have a living God, right? And we have a living God in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Why does he say that? Because he's saying he's still communicating. He's still available. He will still speak and woo and call. And you can still go to him. That he is dynamic and alive and communicating. And so he is calling. He's saying, look, in verse 7. Sorry, verse, yes, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, says, today, if you hear his voice, he's making a call. Do it today. Don't be so arrogant or prideful as to think you have more time when you don't know if you do. He repeats it in verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Paul writes this. He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's like, we're not putting it off. We're not hardening our hearts. We're not going to be so arrogant or prideful. We are going to respond now and today. 
in Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Right? Just like Jude's just like cutting to the chase. Like he saved them. Those who didn't believe didn't get what he had promised. Because they didn't trust and follow and believe. If you turn to Numbers 14, he says that's why they're going to be punished. Because the spies went in and after seeing all of God's provision, they're like, the land is going to be too hard to take. And so two of the 12 say, we can do it. And the other 10 say, no. And so he says, okay, for the, for the men this age, because you don't believe and you haven't trusted me, you don't get to go into the land. Right? Like that there was consequence for the lack of belief. The second thing, the second warning is also then to believers. And what, what Hebrews 3 is doing is he's saying our salvation is secure. And there's a saying that we hear often in the panhandle, once saved, always saved. And what Hebrews 3 is going to say this is if saved, always saved. Right? That if you believe in Jesus, you are saved and it is secure and your hand is held in his and he will hold you. Listen, look at verse um, 13. But exhort one another every day as long as today is called today. Sorry, I, w- I went to the wrong verse there. Um, okay, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. Right? He's saying it's already happened. We have Jesus if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now listen, he's saying that, that our perseverance is not what saves us, but it is indicative of one who has been saved. For those who see me outside of this hour on Sunday mornings... I always have a Yankees hat on. That Yankees hat does not make me a fan. I am a fan who chooses to wear the hat. Because here's the thing. There's some of you in the room that hate the Yankees. Right? And if I wrestled you down right now and threw that, pulled my Yankee hat over your head, you don't get up going, I'm a believer. Right? The Yankees are the best. Right? The hat is indicative that I am a fan. It does not make me a fan. Your perseverance does not save you. It is indicative that you have been saved. And so he is saying, if you do not persevere to the end, you do not lose your salvation. You never had salvation. It was never yours. And so this chapter is not meant to to create a lack of assurance. He's saying perseverance is a mark of one who has met Jesus and is following Jesus. So he says, I want you to, in verse 13, I want you to exhort and to encourage one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so he says this, I want you to do it daily. Why? Because we are prone to drift and we are prone to forget. Right? That it's not this thing of, oh, I prayed to accept Jesus when I'm seven. Now I can do whatever I want because he's got, I've got this fire insurance. Saying that's not sufficient. You persevere by following Jesus. And guess what? We're prone to be deceived. And so we need one another. So I want you to do it daily. But I want you, listen, verse 13 again. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, if we're going to do this together in community, it means I have to know your sin. And you have to know mine. Right? That we're going to walk in open relationship and transparency so that you can say, hey, here's where you're not believing. Here's where you're stumbling. Here's where you're failing and you're falling. And listen, if you continue down that path, your heart's going to be hardened and you're going to be tempted to say that Jesus isn't good anymore. 
I don't want that for you. So come on, brother, right? And, you're, and, and I'm, I'm picking you back up. And, or come on, sister. And you're picking each other up. And we're continuing forward, following Jesus towards paradise, towards rest, to the place that we belong. There we're consistently taking them back to the gospel, the truth of our rescue, that it's not by your strength or your might or your morality or your church attendance or by your tithe or by your voting record. But it's by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that, that saves you and that keeps you saved and that bears fruit that makes you look like Jesus. It's those things. So we have to live in community Living out the one another's of scripture because we're going to fall and struggle and need one another church It's why membership matters Right because hebrews later on is going to say that you have to give an, that the pastor has to give an account Who do I have to give an account for? Every believer in the west texas. I don't think so Every believer in pampa again. No Right, but it's to the believers who have committed to this body. It's the same question. You could say why get married? Right? Like we, we join a place to say we are locking arms together. And these leaders are going to give an account for my soul for how they shepherded me. And so that we know as elders, who are we shepherding? Right? So that we have locked arms and we're saying none of us are going to fall. We're going to get there together. We're moving forward together. Why else do we live in community? Because it is easier to be deceived when it's only your thoughts and only your life and only your mind. Right? We know this, that in isolation, right, things begin to swirl in our hearts and in our heads that we're like, I don't, which way's up? What do I believe? I think I'm the smartest man who's ever lived, right? I mean, it's like, it can either be depressive or it can be like, I am glorious, right? No one has ever had thoughts like I've had. And in, in relationships and in community, people are like, no, you're stupid, right? Like, that's, that's not an original thought. People have been saying that for centuries, right? Or, dude, that's a really dangerous thought, right? Like, we need one another because we are more likely to be deceived alone. Look at verse 14. For we have, in, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold, listen, our original confidence firm to the end. It's the same message that rescued these folks. It's the same message that's rescuing us, that Jesus is sufficient. But if we're honest, we are prone to boredom, and we are prone to wanting something new and original. And he's saying, no, 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 keep going back to the gospel, the truth that Jesus is enough, that it was him who rescued, that it was him that saved, it's him who receives the glory. We don't need different. We don't need to get bored with it, right? We want our hearts to continue to be stirred and, and aflame because of it. And so this morning, if your heart isn't, right, you're being deceived and you're being hardened. And we want to ask the Lord, soften my heart again. Give me eyes to see the beauty and the glory of this. It, it, it's David in Psalm 51 saying, return to me the joy of my salvation. And so our goal, church, as a family is to get to Jesus, to get to eternity together. Right? That we're not doing this alone. We're doing it as a family, moving along. Right? And so we're moving with those who are struggling and struggling and doubting. And we're saying, no, no, no. We point you to Jesus. I'm going to love you and I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to wait. Because I'm not leaving you behind. Right? And it's knowing that sometimes you're the one being drug along. 
And sometimes you're the one dragging. Right? That we're, none of us get to play a role of strength all the time or weakness all the time. Israel did not trust or believe despite the proof of God's miraculous work in Exodus. God has given us, church, a greater proof in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and in his Holy Spirit that is continuing to work in our world for 2,000 years. He's telling them, if you reject this and go back to Judaism, there is no rescue, there is no hope. And your people have already done it once. Church, the same thing is for us. If we go back to trying to save ourselves or reject Jesus, there is no other rescue. There is no other hope. Ezekiel 36 is one of my favorite Old Testament passages. because He says basically he's going to take out our cold, stony hearts of sin and replace it with a soft and malleable heart, stamping his covenant, his commands upon it. So this morning the question is, is your heart cold and stony and hard? Or is it soft, malleable, and marked with Jesus? Right? So for some of us, what needs to happen this morning is you are a believer who has just been warned. And you simply need to repent. You need to walk in community. You need to ask Jesus to give you eyes to see him clearly so that your heart would be softened, so that your ears would hear, so that your actions would begin to respond quicker and quicker and quicker. For some of you, it's saying, I don't think I've ever believed. Like, I'll I'll give a head nod to Jesus, but I don't believe. That he is calling you not to wait, to respond, to trust, to believe, to follow. And for all of us, it's a call to worship the one who's given us a chance of rescue. That we're not left in the wilderness alone. That we have been given an opportunity to get back to the place that we were meant for, created for, and belong. And that is with God forever. Church, the author of Hebrews is just getting started in Hebrews 3. He's going to continue to build out this argument and continue to give warnings. Would we be willing to to dive in, to listen, to ask God to open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears to see the truth of his scripture, to see Jesus is enough and beautiful, and that we would look at one another and say, I have a responsibility to you, and you have one to me to live out these one another's of Scripture and to get back to Jesus, right? To get to eternity together. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and gracious and good. Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. God, thank you that we see prayers in Scripture of, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, that you give us grace to wrestle and to struggle and to ask questions. But God, would we not confuse wrestling and honest question asking with hard hearts who simply don't want it to be true or don't want the effect that it might have on their life to believe it. God, would we not be a people who would claim your name and be bored with you? God, we repent that we sometimes find your word dry. We repent that we often think of Sunday as just another Sunday. That we hear the gospel and nod at it like it's old hat, not like it's the greatest news the world has ever heard. That God has come for his people. So God, even as we say those things, we're going, I I want to feel and to believe and to know that. And so Lord, would you give us soft hearts? Would you give us open ears? Would you give us minds to consider and eyes to see? And would we hold you up? 
and be able to say, Jesus is enough. He is better. So, Lord, for those who see it and know it and believe it now, would they encourage those who are struggling? Lord, and would those who are struggling know it doesn't have to stay that way? Lord, would you speak to your church? Would we respond? In Jesus' name, amen.